Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Thank you very much for joining us for this wonderful live stream. Um, today, I'm really ex- Well, I'm always excited. I'm always a, f- a bit of a fanboy. I think I've said this a multitude of times. I'm always that 26-year-old Australian kid who moved to Canada um, when I was a youngster, and I now have an opportunity to, to sit and chat uh, to some absolutely epic and amazing people in the industry that... 10, 15 years ago, I would never have thought that I'd ever have a chance to uh, to chat to him, especially on my own podcast. So today's uh, guest is Sotha Teague from Amor Diamago, plus a whole bunch of other stuff. He's a writer, he's a radio host, um, and I'm not sure how often he gets interviewed because I know that as a as a host of a podcast or a radio show, you rarely get asked to be an interviewee. And so uh, I'm, not, I'm really excited to uh, flip the script a little bit and uh, welcome to Sotha. How are you? Hey, I'm good, man. Nice to see you. Uh, you know, uh, all things considered, I guess. <laughs> it has been a. It, I think we, we've been very fortunate, and I've talked to a lot of friends. Uh, and when people start complaining a little bit about what's happening here in in BC, um, I I tend to remind them that it could be a lot worse. Like even Toronto and Montreal are quite. Uh, they're all still locked down completely right now um and of course new york has been hit pretty damn hard with the rules and the changes and the multiple different government bodies changing the rules as they go um so i really appreciate you spending some time with me today and uh and i know that we were just talking off camera you've you're reopening uh this weekend and i know how much work that takes um but uh we'll get into that um as always my my i'm a comic book nerd um, a, a pretty hardcore comic book nerd. And so I always like uh, everybody's origin story because I feel like that's always the best place to start. How did you get into the industry? How did you get to where you are now? I mean, it's uh, a long and, you know, complicated trail. Uh, you know, I'm a little, I think I'm a little older than, uh, you know, our average uh, for our industry. I'm 51. Um, my dad owned a bar when I was a kid, uh, a little dive bar on the beach. I grew up on a, a, in a beach town in Panama City Beach, Florida. Uh, the bar was called the Anchor Bar, just beers and shots and lots of Harley Davidsons in the in the parking lot. Um, and then when I finished high school, I left home at age 17 uh, and just trekked off into the country. Uh, I've lived in 12 states since I left home uh, and uh, I went to culinary school. Uh, you know, so I, I have knives, will travel. You know, you can go anywhere and, and cook because everywhere people eat. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I had a pretty illustrious career doing that. Uh, I, most notably for me, I was the, I was a chef instructor at the New England Culinary Institute up in Montpelier, Vermont for two years. Uh, and then most notably, I think for people, uh, I was the research and technical chef for a television show called Good Eats on the Food Network. And then I moved to New York City, sight unseen. I had never been here. I just picked up my gear and, and came here on a whim. Uh, and I thought I'd get myself a job as a waiter so I could just have flexible hours, make some quick cash and learn the city. And then I would find a job as a chef and settle back into my chefing career. And I walked into a, a, a restaurant and was hired on as a bartender. Uh, and I, I told them, I'll do this for six months or so, and then I'll I'll go back to chefing. Uh, but I couldn't stop doing it. What year uh, was uh, I came to New York in, in 2000, so 20 years. Wow. Yeah. So I got behind that bar and it took me almost a year to even realize why I wasn't excited to go back to the kitchen. Uh, And I think that it really came down to guest interaction. 
um, all the mechanics were frankly super similar, right? Uh, it's just a matter of mise en place, preparation, everything in its place, uh, and then execution and delivery, uh, and even some creativity and you know, uh, going out and you know, procuring things. Like it's very similar to being in the kitchen, um, with one notable difference, which is guest interaction. So I think it took me a year to even realize why I wasn't going back to the kitchen. And then once I realized it, I steamrolled ahead and I stayed behind that particular bar for three years. Uh, and then I started working at different bars, mostly restaurant bars. I think I still was connected to the kitchen. You know, I wanted to be in the chef driven environments. So I worked for a bunch of cool chefs here in New York City. Um, Greg Coons and uh, uh, John Frazier and the like. Uh, and then I started uh, dipping my toe into sort of the burgeoning craft cocktail world. Uh, and then I kind of like just like a chef, I sort of figured out what it is. I honed in on the, you know, like at first you're doing everything. You're making everything from, you know, Greek food to Indian food and dabbling in Mexican and doing some fusion, right? So that was kind of what I was as a bartender in the beginning. And then I kind of honed in, right? You finally figure out your own specialty and your own uh, uh, focus. Uh, and then that's how Amore Margo was born, which is, you know, all bitters, Amaro, vermouth, um, no juice, nothing shaken. Like we really zoned in on the, the thing we wanted to do. And so that kind of catches us up to now <laughs> when, when did uh amor Diamago open up <clears throat> uh next month shockingly we will be 10 years old uh, really yeah we turned nine years old uh on march 21st uh, about a week after we shut down for the pandemic so we haven't we didn't get to have any sort of celebratory situation uh on the ninth birthday we're looking forward to getting to celebrate 10 uh hopefully we'll be back up in operations uh you know I would like to say full steam, but I don't think we'll be back to full steam in a month. Um, but at least we'll be there. We'll be doing something uh, to celebrate the, the marker of 10 years, which is crazy uh, to, to have a bar of any kind survive for 10 years, to have a bar of any kind survive in New York for 10 years, to have a yes. bar that's so ludicrously specific <laughs> in New York City survive for 10 years. Like it's, I refer to Amori Margo all the time as the bumblebee, right? It's not aerodynamically sound yet. Somehow it flies. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, tw like, 2011, I remember I was at Clive's in 2011, and even in Canada, like, bitters, amaros, and that's the thing. I always proud, prided myself that I had a huge amaro and bitters collection yeah. at Clive's. But it was difficult to source. And then, two, to, like, actually make it a sustainable, like, category yeah. business model. How did you <laughs> – okay, well – Obviously, the why is always the eccentric sort of answer is like, we wanted to do it and this is, we, we knew it would work. But like, what, what was the sort of hurdles and like, what were the thought processes? Because it doesn't make, if you put it on paper, it oh, doesn't no. really make sense. Oh, no, I have a little shtick I go through with people sometimes, you know, uh, if I came to you with a business uh, pitch and I said, I'm going to start with a room that is definitely too small. Uh, I'm going to light it poorly. I'm only going to play background vocalist jazz because that's the deal I made with my neighbor. Uh, and I'm going to uh, pack the shelves with items that no one's ever heard of. And we're not even going to offer seats for people to sit down and get comfortable. Do you want to invest in this bar? <laughs> like, not a chance. Um, so in the beginning, it was super difficult to procure things. You know, uh, when I see photographs of the bar when we opened, you know, now almost 10 years ago, 
to me, I, I always describe it, it looks toothless. You know, it's like there's not a, like behind you and me both, there's, you know, streams of bottles that are smooth, right? We just had spaces in between because we didn't have enough to fill even those tiny shelves that we have, only 240 square feet in the entire bar. Uh, but I think that we, you know, in a lot of ways, spearheaded the movement towards Amaro, uh, Vermouth, and, and Bitters um, in New York City, which, of course, is kind of a, you know, a, a lightning point for, for the rest of the world. We just kind of got behind it and shouldered into it and said, well, this is what we're going to do. Um, and in the beginning, it was difficult. And I remember always, like, searching, hunting for new items that we could uh, add onto the shelf. Uh, but today, the opposite is true. Like, I'm, I'm almost overwhelmed with people coming, knocking on my door, saying, oh, we got this new bitter. We, we created this new thing. Or this is an old thing that's just never been distributed in America. Would you take it on if we if we pick it up? You know, distributors come to me and say, if we'll pick this up, will you at least be our one customer? And then when I get it, other people see it, and then they get it. And so, like, it starts to snowball. So it's been a, a real wild ride in that uh, um, respect. You know, we we cracked into a thing that didn't exist. We made it. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the many ways to find success in business is to see a market that isn't being uh, addressed and address it. You know, I don't think that was necessarily our goal uh, at the time anyway. You know, don't forget, Amori Margo started as pop-up. We were only going to do it for six months. Um, and then we extended three more months. Then we extended three more months. So now we're at a year. We said, okay, we're either going to do this or we're stopping. Because, you know, I still had a full-time job otherwise at that time. I worked on a year with a full-time job. <laughs> on the side. Um, so I was either like, well, we're going to keep going and really shoulder into this or we're going to let it go. And I'm going to go back to my other job. And it was a great year. And thanks so much. Um, but you know, we, we sat down and discussed it and we, we marched forward and here we are again, like I said, a decade later, which is. That's nuts. just mental. So when did the speakeasy podcast sort of kick off as well? Cause you are a busy guy. Like, yeah. like as you were saying off camera, you had five businesses before COVID. Yeah. You, have, you have a weekly show. Cause you only do one episode a week. Yeah. Well, actually, this past year, uh, we've done as many as three a week um, because a couple of factors play in that have been strangely positive for the show. Uh, we're a live radio broadcast as well as a podcast. So we're live, you know, just like we're live today, but we're live on the Radio Heritage Radio Network. So and we're, we're an interview show. So we always have a guest on. Um, but being live and being radio, we had to have them in studio. Uh, well, the studio has been closed because of COVID. Uh, since March. So we've been doing shows remotely like this on devices. Um, so we've had people in from all over the world, which we always do in New York City. People travel in, but it was a lot more logistics. Now I can just call someone up and say, hey, do you want to be on the show on Wednesday? Uh, so we started doing uh, two and three shows a week uh, in the beginning of COVID so that we could get people's messages out. People who were uh, you know, overcoming hurdles of COVID or people who were struggling with those hurdles got, got messages out from groups like Thirsty and the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation to you know, know where pe to let people know where they could go to uh, support or donate or, uh, you know, do things to make change in government. Like we, we thought that we thought it was important. And also, frankly, suddenly we had nothing to do. Right. Uh, I have two co-hosts. Uh, Damon Bolte founded the show 10 years ago, uh, January. It turned 10. Um, I joined the show about four years ago. Uh, and then uh, Damon moved to California. And again, as a live radio show, I had to take on a different co-host. So I, my, my friend Greg Benson joined us. Uh, but now that we've been remote, Damon's been back on the show. So like, it's been a pretty crazy year. 
uh, for yeah, the show. So it's been, it's been interesting because like it, I have a I had a list of people I didn't want to do as a stream or like online. Like I had a list of people like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang out and uh, I'm gonna hang out and do it at Tales, or I'm going to hang out and do it at San Antonio Cocktail Conference. And then slowly but surely that list has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk because I'm like, I need to have guests, but I might as well do it online and digitally. You know, it. Um, we do it on a platform that's non-video. It's just audio. It's called Zencaster. Uh, and it's at first it was choppy, uh, but you get used to it, you know, uh, like anything else, you adapt and overcome. Uh, I think the video ones are great. We can still see each other. The body language is there. You know when someone's stopping talking, so you know when to begin. We step on each other a little bit uh, still with the Zencaster model, but the show's been great. We get a lot of good attention. You know, we've been nominated three years in a row for a, uh, a Spirited Award from Tales of the Cocktail. We just got nominated for four different Thirsty, uh, uh, sorry, um, Tasty Awards. Um, uh, so, you know, the show's the show's marching on uh, and it's doing really well. It's I love it. Uh, it's, it's my favorite thing I do each week. I don't know how you feel about your show, but like you mentioned, uh, before you started, I was the same. I am the same way. Like I'm a nerd about our field and I love talking to the people in our business. And I think we're extremely fortunate that, um, unlike any other field, I don't think if we were accountants, we could <laughs> as easily call up an accountant across the country, around the world and say, Hey, I read about you in an article and I saw you were doing something cool with numbers. Can you help me out with that? They'd be like, up yours, figure it out. You know, whereas if I see like, you know, Morgenthaler's barrel aging a grasshopper, you know, I can call him up and say like, what the hell? And he'll say, oh, here's how I did it. You know, so I think our industry is open to collaboration all the time in the first place. And then when you say, I've got a platform and I'd love to talk to you on there, uh, you know, I've, we've, I've never reached out to anyone for the speakeasy and had them say no. So yeah. like that alone is, that speaks volumes to our industry. I've had I've had a, a few people who want to start podcasts. I'm like, just reach out to people, and you just you may. I think we've only met once or twice in events and stuff. And I'm like, the worst thing they're going to say is no. Yeah. And then you're having a fantastic conversation, and next thing you know, it's away you go. Yeah, I think I think uh, the only the only thing I've ever gotten I've never gotten to no. know. I've gotten like, oh, I'm too busy. Oh, reschedule. Uh, but now that we again are remote, we can kind of be so flexible with that. The no's are non-existent. Non-existent. So, okay, because I, I get asked this a lot. How do you juggle? Obviously, work is a little bit different right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't juggle, so that's pretty much the extent of my juggling as well. <laughs> uh, how do you how do you balance off? Like when you're back at work full time, when everything's sort of normal. With that, the show you've written two books. You've got a third on the way. Yeah, the third has been um, postponed indefinitely, uh, and we're having to rework it. Sadly, Sean, that book um, was tentatively titled uh, Drinks with Friends. Um, You know, my first book's I'm Just Here for the Drinks, and then this one was supposed to be called Drinks with Friends, where I had reached out to my friends uh, locally, domestically, and globally uh, to, to interview them, to get some of their insight, to reach into their uh, you know, technique that they've pioneered or, or style that they use and um, and then kind of write a little bio of them, have them present a drink to me. And then I present a drink back to them using their technique or style or what have you. So it's their drink, my drink, drinks with friends. Unfortunately, uh, we were already all the way up to a photography stage on that book when the pandemic hit. And many of the people that I interviewed for the book, the places that they worked are gone. Yep. 
So yeah. we're having to kind of scrap it for now and maybe start over. Um, but I'm starting to, you know, outline uh, an entirely different book right now. So we'll see. Books yeah, are weird. Books are weird. <laughs> yeah. I, had, I, I was working on my second edition of Great Northern Cocktails uh-huh. to, to release this year. And I reached out to the publisher and I was just like, I don't think this is the right time to be doing it. And like asking for bios and cocktails and whatnot from bartenders who are out of work or don't even know if they're going to go stay in the industry. I had a lot of people come back and go like, yep, left of the industry. I'm in the cannabis industry now. Or I yep. did my side hustle. And yeah, it, uh, it it's books are a fickle little thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, there's still an audience, Sean. You should still consider putting something out um you know if the pandemic has done anything uh positive for me it's made the show a little bit better and it's really i've seen a term my publisher has seen a tremendous spike in sales of my book um, because the home bartender is is you know back with a vengeance right now because they can't get out and they still want a nice drink so they're you know diy so I've, had, I've got a couple of comments on the way. Andrew Friedman from Seattle's on here. Rick Dobbs is playing. Like he said, I, and now I want an egg cream. So- <laughs> M-Spa. <laughs> and then uh, Cody LeBlanc was like, he just finished your book last week. He said, fantastic book. Immediately among one of my favorites. Wow. No, the the Great, Great Northern Cocktails Volume 2 is going to come out next year in May. We'll uh, we'll get it. I'll, I'm working on my third book right now, which is at the editors right now. So that's almost finished too. But the funny thing is we were talking about all this off camera and, and the way you explained it makes complete another sense that you've written two books on the notes app of your iPhone. Yeah. Which... <laughs> Which to a lot of people, like a lot of people like that, that big tactile, like they want to have the computer, the laptop, that sort of thing, sit in a coffee shop for four hours. I, I know I do. And I, but then when you explain to me why you wrote your books on iPhone notes. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, yeah. again, I had five businesses. I've got a weekly radio show and, and, and podcast to deal with. I've got, you know, multiple Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter accounts that I have to handle. Um, and I wrote two books all from my phone and it, it, you know, I, I don't have a computer. I haven't owned a computer of my own in at least 10 years. I borrowed one to do this thing today and it didn't work. So we're on my phone right now. Um, uh, but if you, if you, people are always like, well, didn't you want to type on a, on a full size keyboard? And I'm like, if I haven't owned one in 10 years, how fast do you think I type? I'm, I'm hunting pack one finger at a time. Right. But I have that phone in my hand all the time. You know, how fast do you think I can text with two thumbs? Texting on a phone is typing on a phone. Right, I am literally a hundred times faster on the phone than I am on a computer. So it makes sense to me. And as you mentioned uh, off air, um, it's with me all the time. So if I think of an idea, got a few things to drop into the outline, even a quick photograph of something I can put into the notes app that'll remind me of something. You know, it's it's super helpful tool in my opinion. Uh, it's it's more computing power than I need. You know. So with with 2021, sort of, I, I had an interesting. We're going to talk. Let's talk about the pandemic now. I don't. I think we need to get everybody's opinion on it. Like Jill's, Jill's. Uh, you were mentioning Jill Coxon's episode, and she like she she dropped the mic a couple of times. Like she just like and like stepped away. On like 2020, when when 2020 rolled over into 2021, everybody's like Happy New Year. I'm like, it's still the same as it was yesterday. Like yeah. Jan first is still the same as December 31st. Like yeah. we didn't have a re like a a theoretical reset like we usually do. It's still, we're still dealing with the same things on on the macro. Do you believe that this has been a big point of mine? Do you think that the government has 
understood understood the full impact of closures and everything on the hospitality industry from employees to restaurants to basically the whole the whole industry i i've always said that i don't think the government fully wraps their head around just how many people are employed how much money it brings in and the influence it has on so many different industries yeah i mean absolutely sean uh i think um here in america and I'm sure globally as well, uh, the government certainly doesn't have an idea of the ecosystem that hospitality is. They just think it's a bar and a restaurant and they don't think of the secondary and tertiary businesses that we support that survive because we're there. Um, you know, from the guy who comes around and sharpens your knives to your linen delivery to obviously, you know, produce and products and, you know, liquor inventory, et cetera. There are so many other businesses that rely on us. The hospitality industry has so many, uh, you know, capillaries that reach out uh, from its epicenter uh, that I don't think that the government has a, a real grasp on by, by any means. Um, further, I think the United States government has had just such a poor response to uh, how many people, both in hospitality and other sectors, have been affected by this. Um, the paltry amount of relief that's been given to individual citizens, you know, uh, if everything goes through, it'll it'll be, uh, uh, what is it now, $2,000 total, $600 back in the beginning and $1,400 now. Uh, you know, that's less than $180 a month to the average American, uh, or that number gets smaller every day that goes by, and yet, and still those $1,400 checks haven't come out yet. Um, people are struggling, and... I think with the advent of all the technology, you know, um, information being as free flowing as it is now, you know, uh, um, people are getting pissed. Um, people are realizing that like, oh, uh, Congress hasn't, uh, uh, or, or rather, yeah, Congress hasn't voted to raise the minimum wage for Americans in 14 years. Yet in that 14 years, they raised their own salary nine times, right? So as soon as the average Joe can get a hold of information like that so quickly and then put it out on a meme or put it out on their social and spread that news around, um, people are starting to get pretty angry. Um, and, and rightfully so. Um, I don't know what it's going to lead to. I think it's going to lead to a lot of civil unrest, which we've already seen with other, um, uh, you know, movements that have gone on during the pandemic because people had time on their hands. You know, if you can't work, you've got nothing to do. You're just doom scrolling through your phone. And you're seeing all these memes, you're getting all this information, you're watching more news, you're becoming a more critical thinker, I hope. Um, and we're starting to realize that we've been largely, you know, back to the hospitality, we're starting to realize that we've been largely overlooked. You know, uh, we our government bailed out airlines. Our government said no more travel. And then they bailed out the airlines who couldn't go to work anyway. Um, so and then the airlines used that money to buy back their own stock, which then gave it a sugar high. So they made money off the money they were given. Um, yet you know, still we're waiting on any kind of relief for the hospitality industry. It's, and we're the third largest employer in the, in the country. So yeah, no, I don't even remember where the question began, but I think our government has failed us uh, epically. Um, and I don't use words like that too, too often. I don't, I don't speak in hyperbole. Um, it's been an epic failure for our segment. Uh, and, and I don't know how we're frankly going to bounce back. I, th I think it is funny because I feel, uh, 
they don't understand the intangibles because you start talking about like a staff member who works once a week washing dishes on a Friday because they're in university or college going through college. There's a little bit, little bit of cream money on the, yeah. on the side sort of deal to wrap your head around a politician and say, yes, we don't have full-time staff in our, in our industry. I don't think they really completely understand. And sometimes I think it's the general public sort of mentality of like, Oh, you're always busy. So you must be rolling in cash. Like, right. you know, I, I think that that's a fallacy here in America. I think everyone in America is always busy because we can't make ends meet. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is that, you know, the average American, if they were making the federal minimum wage, which is $7 and 25 cents an hour, if they worked a full week of what we consider 40 hours, right? Eight hours a day, five days a week, have two days off to have some sort of personal life. You simply can't survive. So you have to have a second job on the weekends. You have to, have some side hustle. You have to have some something you're doing. Hopefully, maybe getting paid under the table so taxes aren't being taken out. You know, um, it's you know these things have been laid bare by the pandemic in, in the United States and I'm sure other countries as well. And then again, that stream of information that we're allowed to see so easily now. When we look and we see that you know Japan guaranteed all of its uh, citizens 90% of their normal pay throughout the pandemic. Uh, France paid people seven thousand dollars a month during the pandemic. Uh, and in America, we got two grand for now 11 months, right? And we're the wealthiest nation in the world. Yeah. Like there's a disconnect here. So I think it's, uh, I don't want to, you know, say words like civil war, <laughs> but there's there's definitely some unrest and some, some unhappiness. And when things get back to a place where they're leveled off a little bit, I think it's going to be a, a real comeuppance for the upper class and for, you know, government officials to, to be held to a, a, a higher standard of care. We, we've elected these people to take care of us and, and they're not. Um, so I think it's, there's going to be a lot of turnaround. So you were talking about side hustles. You're, the, you're obviously one of the kings of side hustles. You have as much as, much as you do. I know how I, I know how I feel when it does it. Have side hustles sort of balanced you off a little bit, kept your hands busy over 2020 and the, the pandemic? I think I yeah. talked to a lot of staff and I'm like, if, you've, if you're a graphic designer, you can start a t-shirt company really easy these days. If you've got time on your hand, Bass Mask was free. WSET 1 in Canada was free from Perna Ricard, paid for a whole bunch of WSET 1s and stuff. So training, education, side hustles. Was that something that leveled you off a little bit? You you had something else to f- become deficient. We were talking about the radio show, but then some, a couple other things like popped up and we're like, huh. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm pretty vocal about my uh, battles throughout my life with anxiety and depression. I've been uh, in and out of talk therapy since I was in junior high. I've been on and off of medications since that same time as well. Um And one of my major coping mechanisms is to work, to stay busy. And when the pandemic hit, of course, we were shut down uh, immediately for 100% for the first six days. And then in New York, they said we can do to-go cocktails. So immediately I went into work and I opened up a window on the front of the place and I started selling cocktails out a window. Um, You know, we called that the lemonade stand. During that time, I bought an electric scooter and I started making deliveries on my own right from the bar. Um, I used to be a chef. So I cured 60 pounds of salmon with Burnett Branca. And then I whipped Branca Mentha into cream cheese and I sold the hard start bagels, right? <laughs> Branca Mentha and Burnett Branca is the hard start when you mix them half and half, right? Um, I, uh, I, I made a puzzle. I sold, they're behind me. You can see them there. 
I made a puzzle uh, of a painting that Jill DeGroff did of me uh, and I've been selling those online. I joined a Facebook group of over 10,000 members to promote my book and have been selling those from my house. I bought a scale and a, and a label machine and all this other stuff to, so I can do shipping straight from here so I can autograph them. Um, I, uh, I created uh, custom shoes uh, with Vans. Um, I, I can't even remember all the things I've done um, in, in the past year. Uh, to keep myself busy and then and then all this by the way was while operating you know a more as to go only and then we opened up outdoors so i had an outdoor cafe that i never wanted or conceived uh we ended up having to take over the space next door because amore margo was in the back of another place that didn't make it through COVID, and so if they didn't make it we didn't make it so oh. our choice was either to leave or to take over the whole space we took over the space. We converted that into what we now call Amori Margo Reserve and the general store at Amori Margo. So two new businesses, um, you know, all of this to keep myself sane. Uh, it's been extremely difficult. Um, I did uh, 15, I think. They're all in my archives on Instagram. I did 15 Ask Me Anything sessions to make a little bit of money. All these things were to make money to keep me, keep me afloat. I did all this while closing four of my bars, which was you know, heartbreaking and terrible to talk to those employees and to go into those places literally and pull things out of them that you you know kind of just put in. Amori Margo 2 was only open for four and a half months before the pandemic hit. It did, didn't make it. Um, like it's been a very tumultuous year, um, but the hustle uh, is in me and the hustle is real. So I did a lot of stuff to keep myself afloat and to keep myself sane. And since we've touched on that topic, um, December 24th was my last day of work and I haven't worked since then. And if work is my coping mechanism, then I'm not coping very well. Uh, so I slid into a pretty deep depression um, where I haven't, uh, I, I didn't leave my apartment for a couple of weeks. I barely spoke out loud uh, on any given day to anyone because there's no one here for me to talk to. Um, and now I'm just kind of resurfacing from that because we're starting back to work. You know, hopefully this Sunday we're opening for Valentine's Day. Uh, and then we'll have to rebuild the team and, and, and reboot the bar and get back to work uh, to some level. And hopefully that'll slowly build or, or maybe quickly build. I don't know what's better uh, and get us back to going. But, yeah, uh, you have to be crazy a little bit, creative a lot, uh, and you have to just keep moving. That's, you know, you have no choice. Um, you can't sit still for too long. And I, and I sat in this room for about a month, and now it's time to get my shit back together and get moving. Do you think, I know there's a lot of industry uh, initiatives and groups and stuff. I'm a part of a couple here in Canada. And I try to break down, I, I talk about my mental health quite regularly and quite openly, which has got both good and bad comments privately and publicly with people saying like, you shouldn't share that much to thank you very much. I'm glad that you did. Um, do you think there's still a, a sort of a stigma when it comes to the old, our older generation in the bar industry, you know, we, we've got the, the, we, from the outside looking in, we've got everything the young bartenders want. If that makes sense, you know, like we've got the book deals, we've got venues, we've got podcasts and all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. I feel hospitality entrepreneurship is a little bit different to regular entrepreneurship in the way that entrepreneurship is already really, really hard, but then you put on the layer of hospitality where, it's hard. And then on top of that, the money you make at the end of the day isn't like if, if I was a tech entrepreneur, it'd be a little bit different. I could sell my company for a couple of million dollars after three, right. years. you know, where hospitality entrepreneurship is like every day you wake up and you're like, 
okay, time to grind out 16 hours and we'll see how many cents we make at the very end of the day. Do you right. think there's still a, a, a stigma around mental health and, and talking about mental health in the industry um, openly? Yeah, there certainly is. I, I'm sorry to hear that you've gotten bad uh, or negative comments whenever you've shared that stuff. I personally have never uh, even gotten even something remotely negative. Uh, it's always positive. And that's, I think it's a duality of, of, of help. Um, it helps me. Uh, and I didn't realize this until similarly, uh, a few years ago, I was struck by a car on my bicycle and badly, badly, badly broke my arm and couldn't work at all for almost six months. Um, I'm healed up now. It's good. Uh, but I couldn't work at all for almost six months. Um, and I fell into a super deep depression. And that is the first time that I ever went online and said anything about my mental health and wellness uh, I just said, look, I'm zooming into a terrible depression. I can't go to work. That's what keeps me sane, um, et cetera. And the, the flood that came at me um, of positivity, I got reached out to by CBS radio to do an interview. I got reached out to by Kat Kinsman uh, with her uh, great uh, blog uh, called uh, um, Chef's Issues. Uh, uh, it's mostly about the kitchen, but, you know, it's because people in the front of the house don't come forward. So I was one of the first to be in front of the house featured on that. Um and I realized that me being vocal about my issues was therapeutic and helpful for me. So there's the, that's the selfish part. What I didn't realize when I did it at first anyway, is that it also seems to help other people, right? So I know for a fact it helps me and I can see that it probably helps other people. So why wouldn't I do this? So the stigma I think is definitely there. I don't understand why. And I think that's the nature of stigmas, right? no reason for it to be there. It simply is. Um, but as long as I know that it's helping me to do it, I'm going to keep doing it whenever I need to. Uh, and as long as I think that it's helping someone else, that's going to encourage me to do it as well. You know, uh, and the evidence is there that it is helping someone else. So great. Uh, as far as, you know, people maybe wanting what we have, man, careful what you wish for. Uh, you know, yeah, I, um, 51 years old. I'm overweight. I, uh, my, every joint hurts every day when I wake up. Um, my, my, you know, my arches are falling. Um, uh, my back is killing me all the time. Uh, and you know, you, you never know what's going to happen. Like you said, at the end of the day, uh, a friend of mine here in New York city had a bar for 17 years, uh, in the East village. And when he went to sell it, he said, I said, well, are you, what are you walking away with as sort of a net gain from this situation? And he goes, nothing. I I'm walking away with having been able to own my own business and set my own schedule for 17 years. I made no profit at the end. <laughs> right. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, that's things I think uh, going back to like what people from the outside looking in, like people see Gordon Ramsay and, and Jamie Oliver as like celebrity chefs and driving Ferraris and stuff. But I'm like, yeah, but you understand they have like almost a hundred restaurants and venues and they have book deals and, and the amount of money they're making at the end of all that, is still a small portion of like a tech a tech entrepreneur or or sure. this like like it, it's it's kind of this sort of weird this weird uh, oh look what they have I'm like yeah but they have have to do so so much more compared yeah. to the tech industry or lawyers or accountants or stuff like that. Well, the thing that I would impress upon someone is to think about uh, you know as a former chef myself, this analogy is good, right? Chefs can easily have more than one location because the chef is in the kitchen. Right. When your dish comes, you just assume that he's in there and he made it. He's a hundred restaurants across the world. He's probably statistically not here. <laughs> but if I own a second bar, I'm either right there in your face or I'm not. 
Right. And you have to be. Like people right. expect it. <laughs> right. So it's the scalability is very different. You know, you can't go to my bar if I'm not there. Right. So <clears throat> even when I had four other places, I tried to put someone else as the face, you know, uh, and kind of make it their own. Uh, and I'm I'm at a Mori Margo. You find me there. Uh, yeah, the, scal- the scalability is, is radically different. How many weeks do you, do you usually do behind the bar? Uh, how many days a week? Oh, how, many, uh, how many hours a week? Uh, well, hours? I don't know. <laughs> uh, no shift is shorter than 10 hours, and I usually work three. So that's a little over 30 hours right there. But then you have to remember I'm in charge of you know inventory and scheduling and ordering and receiving. So even though we open at five, I get there sometimes at 10 in the morning. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just because the business that I run operates at night, the businesses that make it run operate in the daytime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm behind the bar 30 hours a week minimum, uh, and I'm at the bar way more than that. And that was in the old model when I had the other bars to go around to as well. And I would try in the beginning to work three shifts at Amori Margo and at least one shift at the other bars. Mm-hmm. So I was working, you know, five to six nights a week, uh, but that was unsustainable. And I knew it. I knew that eventually I would wean myself off of that. But then the pandemic hit and we closed them all. So I'll probably when we go back to work, I'll go back to four nights a week at Amori Margo, which is which is what I did before the other bars. So 55 to 65 hours just on the bar itself and then admin, et cetera, another 15 to 20, depending on the week. That's yeah, a lot. It is a lot. Like I, I'm do I stick in around about twenty five to thirty hours a week at Clive's, on top of all my other stuff. Yeah. So and I'm I'm getting now. There's starting to pick back up and get busy again. I'll be picking up Fridays and Saturday night shifts on the bar, yeah. again plus the all the admin stuff, which is uh, a lot. Plus the eighty hours a week I do for all the other companies that I do <laughs> as well. Um, yeah. What, what, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know that you've got stuff to do with uh, be reopened on Sunday. What's your hopes and dreams and what, what do you feel is the, the possible reality for 2021? I mean, my long-term term hopes and dreams, I, I, I want to retire on a boat in the Caribbean, a boat big enough to live on. I want to live on a boat. Uh, I wanted that since I was a kid. I grew up on the beach. I love being on the water. That's my long-term goal. However, I will say this. I had a sort of a goalpost for that in mind that has now moved to a position that I don't even see it right now. Uh, having to close four out of five businesses means certainly not directly, but you know, let's just use flat numbers and say, well, I lost 80% of my businesses. I lost 80% of my income. Yeah. That's not exactly true, but you understand the easy math. So now retirement seems like a goal that frankly, I'm trying to wrap my head around the idea that it isn't going to happen. Um, you know, in America, you just work until you fucking die. Uh, but for 2021, I don't know, Sean, I want business to return, but I'm fearful that the um, public is going to be shy to cram themselves back into tightly packed bars, even when uh, vaccines are available, et cetera. You know, we've been told now for for 11 months, nearly a year to distance ourselves from other humans. My bar is 240 square feet. It doesn't work unless it's full, full, full of people doesn't profit it doesn't you know the machine doesn't work unless it's full and to be full is to be shoulder to shoulder um you know if i have 25 people in there uh you're 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 shoulder to shoulder if i have 35 people in there we're starting to be sardines right um i don't know if people are going to want to do that uh for a while you know i think about 
knowing people who lived through the Great Depression, and they're still a little weird about money. I think that maybe a young woman today who's pregnant has a, a kid, in 15 years, that kid is going to say, Mom, I'm going to go to the concert of the band I love. And mom's going to be like, no, 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 too many people. <laughs> right? You can't be in a space that small with that many people. There's still going to be some stigma to this for a long time, I think. Hopefully I'm wrong. I know that in cosmopolitan cities like New York, San Francisco, L.A., et cetera, where we're forced to be on top of each other, we have to ride the subway, we're going to acclimate to it a little quicker. But I think that that means that people who live in Des Moines, Iowa, or, you know, somewhere rural in Europe, their next vacation, which might have been to go to New York, might be to go somewhere rural, to be in the woods, to be in a cabin. Um, so, like, we're, it's going to ripple for a while. Uh, and I don't know how that's going to work out. My hope is that we get back to business um, as best we can. My hope also is that we sort of try and rearrange some things so that people have uh, health care. That would be huge, right? To be able to offer health care to all my team, uh, that would make me feel accomplished. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, it, we've got a little bit more time now to kind of focus on those kind of things. And that's what, as a company, we are, we're doing. My, my partner has changed the ethos of, of our company altogether. We're now called Overthrow Hospitality, and we're trying to create spaces for people that, that, that maybe didn't exist in the hospitality industry. And we're trying to get to a place where we can offer those things. Um, you know, as, like you mentioned, Jill Coxon was on. She's amazing. She's been doing that kind of stuff, marching towards those kind of things for, for some time now. And it, it, we're overdue. You know, like we need to, if we want to be professionals, we want to consider ourselves professionals in our field, then we need to operate like professionals in other fields operate. And so we need to take those cues and get that stuff done. We need to have sick days, paid vacation, uh, um, and, and healthcare for our employees. And so those are the things that we're starting to march towards with our, with our new company ethos. Um, and, you know, again, I think uh, my next steps would be either decide to start the ball rolling towards um, scaling up again and opening new places. Don't forget, I had a Mori Mario for seven years before opening anything yeah. new. And then I opened four bars in two years, which was a hell of a thing. And none of them got to a place of true profitability yet. So they were all on their way. So didn't get paid for any of them, you know, basically invested, invested, invest. I lost money, effectively is what I'm saying. And then in in less than six months, when, once the pandemic started, all four of them fell. Yeah. So I'm back down to just one. Now, granted, that one is now bigger because we took over the space next door. But, you know, I have to make a decision as a 51-year-old man. Do I want to, do I have the energy to scale back up and start over and open new places? Um, if I do, will I do it smarter than I did in the past. It's pretty difficult to open four in two years. Um, will I build a team? Will I do things like that? I don't know. Or do I make the decision to say, I'm just going to do a Maury Margo, maybe write another book and mm -hmm. cruise off into the sunset. I don't know. I don't know, Sean. Uh, these are questions that are going to reveal themselves as we can, you know, get things back in motion. Yeah. I think you brought up some great points. I think at, at the end of the day, I think this is worldwide. Uh, let's say North America. I think that North America is probably the worst one. It's like, our industry was broken before the pandemic. The pandemic just pulled back the covers. Sure. And if we go if we go back to the same old ways we were running stuff and doing stuff with toxicity in kitchens and in bars and in restaurants and in staff culture and stuff like that, we're just going to end up in the exact same place, just worse off. Yeah. Yeah, we got to treat each other better, you know. Um, and and you know, 
we can't just continue to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. You know, um, I've had to look around and have some hard talks with my friends and colleagues here in New York City and, and further who, who own businesses and who are struggling and struggling and struggling. And I've had to just look at them and say, there's no nobility in going down with the ship. Mm-hmm. Like if, if your boat is sinking, get off the boat. And that's what I did to close the four that I closed. And believe me, uh, if we, if the, if the PPP loan, which definitely saved our bacon, if the PPP loan didn't come through, we were going to close them more, mm-hmm. you know, it was going to be over. We weren't going to just stand there and defiantly destroy our own financial uh, positions just to say, we gave it our all. We fought yes. till the end. No, you fight until there, there's a place where you say, the fight's mm-hmm. over. I got to walk away. And that's hard. That's extremely heartbreaking. I think, I think it's always hard for hospitality people because we are so passionate. And a lot yep. of the stuff we do is always passion-driven. And the secondary things like, oh, we'll make money off this because, well, Amor de Amago is exactly the thing. It's like, let's open a Amaro bar. Like, it's passion-driven. And then the business side of things comes later. But at the end of the day, it is just a business. And yep. businesses can be taken away and closed and restarted and yep. everything else. And so sometimes I feel like hospitality people do that sort of thing. It's like, I need to stick, stick with this because it's my passion. It's what I do. And you're like, well, it's just, it's just brick and mortar. It's just... Yep. It's just fixtures. It's just inventory. Yeah, like, start over. You'll bounce back. You know, I think the landscape is going to change tremendously. Um, you know, here in New York, landlords in the beginning, uh, mine included, were just unwilling to negotiate. Uh, for instance, Amori Margo 2, my landlord literally said to me, uh, I'm not in the business of lowering rent. <laughs> to which my response was, then I'm no longer in business here. Like, if you can't negotiate with me, I'm out. Now, that space has been empty. Since then, I walk past it every day on my way to work. Uh, it's been empty since then, and it'll continue to be empty for a while. This guy's definitely made a mistake. So what he's going to eventually do is, is offer it for a much lower rent. So then there's these, the, the, you know, the younger guard that's going to come in behind us, and they're going to be entrepreneurial, and they're going to take these spaces and take those risks, and, and they're going to move forward. So I don't think for a second that the, you know, that our industry is dead uh, it's going to go through a massive overhaul and a big change. Um, but there's a lot of that that's probably going to be exciting and good. You know, these are places that are going to open with health care and paid sick days. These are places that are going to start from a place of, you know, healthiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, whereas, you know, we just crack open a, a business and, and hope for the best. And, you know, we've got our plans in mind, but but, you know, we weren't thinking about those things. Like, I'm hopeful that minimum wage goes up. I'm hopeful that insurance is available. I'm hopeful that, you know, all those things will kick in and we can be, again, not just think of ourselves as professionals, but operate our businesses as any other professional business would operate. Well, Seth, I want to thank you so much for your time. This was uh, fantastic. I, I remember that first time you came out after your accident and was, was talking about mental health and it was a huge uh, push for me. A huge push for me to to talk about it more, and I think we've talked about that. I've reached out to you a couple of times and and checked in because I think that's a it's a it's a massive thing we need to do more often. Um, I wanted your time was fantastic. Like, it just a, I'm fanboying out pretty hard right now, so I'm gonna finish up this interview as quickly as possible before I embarrass myself. But uh, I just want to thank you so much, man. Hey, thank you, and you know, to your audience, um, I'm creative drunk on almost all platforms. Uh, yeah. Um, you can reach out to me, uh, DM me. I'm, I'm an open book about anything, frankly. Uh, if you just want to 
shout out, say hello, or if you want to ask me a question about business, technique, uh, mental health, uh, I don't know, book writing, iPhones, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> uh, like, it's good for me to engage, you know. I feel like I've been so far from being able to engage uh, for the past year. It's good. It, it really helps my soul uh, heal a little bit to be able to engage with people. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, sir. I'll chat to you really soon. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, bud. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.